You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 35th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today, I want to talk with you about helping your students develop self-discipline. Children are born with a brain that's wired to develop behaviors that will get them what they want and need. The first behavior they have upon entering the world is crying. Infants are quite adept at using this skill to put the adults in their life into frantic action to stop them from crying, which typically involves finding the magic answer of what they want at that particular moment in time. The parent who spends the most time with the child is usually best at this, having learned to discriminate the child's different types of cries. There is the I'm hungry cry, I'm tired cry, I've got a wet or dirty diaper cry, something's hurting me cry, I'm scared or startled cry, I'm bored, lonely cry, or I lost my thing of interest cry. Outsiders wonder how the parent developed their superhuman skill, but the parent knows it's just about spending time with the child and paying attention to the things that satisfy them. Somewhere between two and five, children start to get societal cues, typically from their parents, about what crying will and will not be tolerated. This is often gender-related. Boys begin to get the message that when they are hurt, they should buck up, be a man, quit your crying or I'll give you something to cry about, and various other methods to underscore the gender stereotype that men don't cry. Girls, on the other hand, tend to be coddled when they cry. It should come as no surprise, then, that we see more depression among females and more anger management issues with men. This same pattern holds true in the classroom. The thing to remember is that whatever behavior your student is using is their best attempt to get what they want at that moment in time. Another interesting point I ask teachers to consider, particularly preschool and elementary teachers, is that there are differences in learning and socialization behaviors in boys and girls. Because most early grade school teachers are female, the class norms are frequently biased against boys and normal boy behavior. This is beyond the scope of this particular podcast, but if you're interested in more on the subject, check out the book, Boys and Girls Learn Differently by Michael Guerin and Kathy Stevens. Due to the lack of understanding of cultural difference, children of color also have behavior that is punished at a higher rate than their white classmates. For more information on this, stay tuned for a webinar series I am putting together in conjunction with Prairie State College for school teachers to become more aware of their implicit biases. Despite all your awareness of gender and cultural norms and behaviors and your steadfast commitment to creating a need-satisfying environment for all in your class, there will still be the occasional behavior challenge you will need to address. I want to lay out some progressive discipline steps that can be taken to help students learn the challenging process of self-discipline. A teacher's job is to educate their students. This is what you are prepared to do in your university classes. However, are you prepared for effective interventions when your students are not interested in being educated? I know you're not prepared to be a therapist for your students, but surely you need skills to help your students get back on the learning track when they have taken a detour. Sometimes students will be in a bad mood. There are things that happen both in and out of school that have huge effects on your students. These things can't be ignored. 
I want to provide you with a Socratic questioning process developed by Dr. William Glasser to assist students to think through their own problems to find a solution. You may be called upon to coach your students into making better choices. Coaching is different than counseling and certainly within your purview as a teacher. The first thing to remember when a child in your class is challenging is not to take it personally. This can be hard to do when said child is leveraging an attack against you. Understand it's not personal. The behavior of the student is not the actual problem. The behavior is the language that child is using to tell you there's something they need that they cannot currently access. All humans have five basic needs, safety and security, connection, significance, freedom, and joy. If you want more information about these needs, please listen to episode 33, delves into these needs in greater detail. Once you understand and accept any behavior the child exhibits is their best attempt in that moment to get something they want, your job as a teacher is to accept it as their best attempt and to make your best attempt to discover and understand what they want. And if they can't have it now, then what need are they looking to satisfy? If a student can't get what they want immediately, as a teacher, you can always offer solutions that will at least get them what they need. Frequently, when the student says something hurtful to a teacher, that teacher interprets it as disrespect, and the student very well may have been working to disrespect you. But that child can't be successful in disrespecting you unless you take the bait. One of the pet peeves of teachers I have heard over the years is when a student says a big F you to the teacher. Disrespectful? Perhaps, if you interpret it that way and respond accordingly. Imagine this response instead. Well, Tommy, I get from that that you're really mad about something, but I need more information to be able to help you. You might not be able to imagine that response, but the goal is to move closer to the hurting child instead of doing something to damage or destroy your relationship. That child may be lashing out at you, but I would bet the underlying need for that child is connection. However, it could be that they aren't feeling safe, the safety and security need, or important, the significant need, or free, the need for freedom. The progressive model of discipline. Number one, when you feel yourself moving in the direction of a non-helpful response, remind yourself that this behavior is your student's best attempt to get what they want in that moment and your job is to help them figure out what they want and to be able to get it without disrupting your class. Whatever the disruptive behavior, remind the student that one of the classroom guidelines is to check out of the learning quietly so as not to disrupt other people's learning and ask if it's possible to get back on track. Number two, should you realize the student is not willing to return to task, you can ask if they would like to take a time out in the back of the room where they can disengage from the learning process temporarily, but still stay in the classroom. You will want to create an inviting space for students in the back of the classroom, unseen by other students, where they can engage in quiet activities. They could read a book, meditate, do some deep breathing, play quietly with a toy, complete a puzzle, or simply listen to you while pretending not to engage. This is likely to happen anyway, that they will be listening to you. Number three, if the student turns down your invitation to go to the quiet place at the back of the room, you can inquire if talking with you about things would help. Ask if the student would like to speak with you about whatever is happening. 
If the student says yes, see if they can wait until the conclusion of class or the teaching piece you might be in the middle of. If the student, after being recognized and offered an audience to discuss, can wait, then finish your task and speak with the student using the questioning process I'm going to outline in a bit. Number four, if the student indicates they can't wait, then speak to them in the hallway while giving your students a task assignment to complete while you're in the hall. Part of what you'll do with the student in your plan is helping them develop more tolerance to be able to wait next time until you can attend to your student conveniently. The process to use with the student is the following questioning process. Make sure you have a need-satisfying environment, meaning your student feels safe with you, safety and security need, they believe they can trust you and that you care about them, connection need, they know they're important to you, significance need, they know you aren't trying to change them or coerce them to do things they don't want to do, and you give them choices, freedom need, and they know you are going to provide self-discovery learning, joy need. Then you want to explore with the student what they want. With younger children, you can use Nancy Buck's magic question. What do you want that you're trying to get by and insert whatever the behavior is when you are in the moment? If you're in the hall, ask what the student wants. Often they can tell you what they don't want. You'll want to reframe the don't want into what you think they want. For example, if they're complaining about other kids saying unkind things to them, you could ask, what would you want them to do instead? Or if they weren't doing that, what would they be doing instead? Before you proceed to the next question, be sure you have a clear picture of what the student wants. Resist the urge to move ahead with your own understanding by checking what you're thinking with the student. I find using the have, do, be technique helpful in understanding another's want. You would say, if you had what you want, what would you have that you don't have now? What would you be doing that you're not doing now? And how would you be different? When you have clear answers to those questions, then you'll be reasonably confident you're hearing your client instead of filling in the blanks with your understanding of what it is they're saying. We are adept at taking shortcuts by conceptualizing what someone else wants by filling in the meaning you might have in that same category. This is a mistake. Next, ask the student what behavior they've been using to try to get what they want. They should tell you everything, the things that have worked, those that haven't, and the things that have had no effect. If they're leaving out behaviors you've seen, whether positive, ineffective, or negative, you can add them here. But when you do, use your please pass the butter voice. It's important that you remain neutral and non-judgmental. The next question is to inquire whether the things the student has been doing are working. If they say yes, then you might need to check whether the behavior is responsible by asking if it's against the rules or illegal or whether it hurts anyone, including the student. If the answer to those questions is yes, then you want to ask, if we can work together to find a way for you to get what you want without breaking rules, the law, or hurting anyone, would you be interested in at least talking to me about it? If they say yes, you can move on to planning. If they say no, you either want to respect their decision or move into negotiating. However, when you ask if what they're doing is working and they say no or not fast enough or they don't know, 
Then you can move on to the next question. The next thing to ask is if they're willing to do something differently to get what they want. At this point, you're basically asking permission to discuss what doing things differently could look like. You want a yes, so you can go on, but if the student isn't interested in creating a new plan, then you'll want to ask what they think will happen if nothing changes. This is also asked in your please pass the butter tone. It's not meant as a threat. You simply want that student to be informed that if their current behavior persists, something will likely happen, and you want to be sure they know what that is before they make their final decision. If they know the potential consequences and want to continue on the path they're on, you need to get out of their way. On the other hand, if they're willing to discuss alternatives, then you can move forward to the plan. When the child is willing to explore alternatives, you want to ask if they have any ideas of their own. Whenever you can go with a child's plan, the better off you are, because their buy-in will be higher. Sometimes a child may be looking for suggestions from you. Anytime you offer suggestions for a plan, you want to offer at least three so you're not influencing their thinking process. It is crucial for you, the teacher, to stay neutral. You want the student to make their own decision about what they think would be best. When you give only one option, that's the same as offering advice. Two options feels like a forced choice, an ultimatum that doesn't allow for much choice at all. Three options provide the experience of choice, and if you can come up with other options, great. Whatever the student picks becomes their choice. When providing three options, it is usually some version of the following. One, you can keep doing it exactly the way you're doing it. Two, you could do it worse. Or three, you could do it better. Another way to offer three choices, which I like to offer in job situations or relationship situations, you could keep trying to change it, you could accept it, or you could leave it. And another way is you could change what you're doing, you could change what you want, or you could change how you think about it. Those are three models for giving three choices, and whenever you offer three choices, you want to end with, that's all I can think of. Is there anything you can think of? A lot of times you'll find students will come up with yet another option that maybe combines some of what you've already talked about, and then they can really own that choice as their own. Number five, sometimes the student can be so disruptive and refuses any efforts to redirect. In this case, it's best to move closer to the student and in a low, compassionate voice, explain what you're going to have to do if they can't calm down, meaning you'll have to ask them to leave the classroom. Be sure they know you don't want to do that and that you're willing to discuss the problem in the hallway, but if they insist on interrupting everyone else's learning, you will need to ask them to leave the room. This should always be a last resort reserved for persistent disruptions and safety concerns. Number six, you can begin by offering the student time to wait in the hallway until they have regained composure and then can re-enter the classroom. Number seven, if they can't be quiet in the hall, you may have to tell them to go to the connection room or to the principal's office, neither of which are meant as a punishment. Both places are supposed to be constructed as areas of safety where the child can regroup and process what's happening with them so they can quickly return to the classroom. It's hoped that whoever intervenes with the child will close the loop with you by meeting with both you and the child to fill you in on what was going on and how you might be able to be more helpful to the student in the future.
or to tell you what happened had no roots in the classroom and occurred because of something that happened elsewhere. If you don't get that closure voluntarily, try to seek that closure yourself by either talking to the student or to the person who intervened with them. Depending on the seriousness of the behavior, you may need to use your judgment to decide where in this progressive discipline model you should begin. For example, if the behavior is a big, in-your-face FU, you may not begin with asking if they can get back on task. That behavior requires more active intervention on your part, such as inviting the student into the hall for a conversation. The situation might call for negotiating differences when the student is disrupting because of you or something that's happening in the classroom. If you recall episode 27, the discussion was about empowered leadership. I was talking about leadership in business. However, you, as a teacher, are also a leader. What makes an empowered leader, among other things, is creating that need-satisfying environment where your students, as well as yourself, can get your five basic needs met if you choose to. Should you become the teacher who prioritizes your students' needs above your own, you will lean toward the laissez-faire leader. If you prioritize your own needs above your students, you will lean more towards a dictator teacher. When the empowered leader is somewhere in the middle of those two categories, balancing the importance of your needs and your students' needs equally. In balancing your needs, the needs of your students, and the particular needs of the student acting out, I strongly encourage you to practice the art of good negotiation. And I'm not talking about the kind of negotiation that leads to you needing to win because you're the teacher. I'm talking about negotiating until you have a win, the class wins, and so does the troubled student. You should walk away from the negotiation with everyone getting their needs met. You may not all get exactly what you want, but your underlying needs will be met. Treat your student like you might a friend. Don't tell them what to do. If he or she wants something you don't like, make a counteroffer. Be sure to tell the student what you need. In school, your highest needs are keeping students safe, ensuring respect for everyone, and providing learning opportunities. If one student's behavior is getting in the way of you providing those three things, then you need to talk with that student about how you want them to have what they need and you also want what you need. Tell them what you need and ask what they want and work together to find a workable solution. You can't compromise on safety, respect, and learning. And you also want to be sure that everyone, including the student you're talking with, can also have safety, connection, significance, freedom, and joy in the classroom. Allow them to propose what they think will work to accomplish those goals. If you accept, great. If not, propose a counteroffer. Allow this back and forth to play out until you are both satisfied with the outcome. Resist the temptation to pull the teacher card. You know what I mean. Deciding that you know best and dictating what the solution will be in a take it or leave it kind of way. If you and your student can't have exactly what you want, you should both at least be able to get what you need. This is why it's important for you to listen to your student, to do the best you can, to understand the need or needs behind your student's want so you can help find an acceptable solution for everyone. Your job in the negotiation is to explore what your student wants, what they ultimately need, and work towards a win-win-win-win solution. Yes, that's four wins. You win, your student wins, the class wins, 
and your relationship with that student wins for going through the process. If the student is too young to have this level of conversation, all you can do is propose at least three options. In this case, imagine which are the most likely top three needs that could be causing the problem and propose three choices, one that would meet each of the needs that could be the problem. Whichever one they choose will give you a hint about how to adjust the environment to be more need satisfying for that student. If they choose the connection solution, you can assume the child needs more connection. If they choose the significant solution, assume that's what they need and so on. The idea is to help all the students get their needs met in ways that don't frustrate yours and allow for safety, respect, and learning in the classroom. I hope you'll join me next week when the topic is going to change to mental freedom. I'm super excited to tell you more about this new creation of mine. I will be chatting with the first six people to go through my mental freedom group coaching program. I'm currently taking names for the second cohort if you're interested. Just go to www.therelationshipcenter.biz, hover over coaching, and then click on Mental Freedom Group Coaching to learn more and get on the wait list. I'm looking forward to next week. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast. And remember to subscribe.